0: Welcome to Rounding Third, the official podcast of the Nashville Sounds. On the field, off the field, Rounding Third takes you inside Nashville Sounds baseball. Here's your host, Jeff Hem. Welcome back to another edition of Rounding Third, the Sounds Podcast. Jeff Hemback with you, and today on Rounding Third, we catch up with one of the great guys in the game, a guy who's always in a good mood, Sounds hitting coach Al LaBuff or Buffy. First of all, Al, how many people even call you Al around the game versus calling you Buffy? Not many
1: people call me Al <laughs> around the game of baseball. Uh, usually, the baseball, if somebody calls me Buffy, then I know it's a, it's a baseball guy.
0: I'm also curious, given the spelling and the pronunciation of your last name, like if you're making a dinner reservation or somebody's got to call out, you know, your, your car's here, whatever it is, how many people get it right as LaBeouf? Uh, not many, but when I leave a reservation,
1: usually I spell it uh, phonetically, <laughs> L-E-B-U-F-F. So pretty much they, then they can say it so I know what the heck uh, table I'm going to get or uh, yeah.
0: if I get my right car this year 2021 is i know i'm putting you on the spot but is what year for you in the game when you combine playing with coaching uh right around 40 years been doing this and as you say that number what
1: what comes to your mind it's an awful long time but uh you know i'm thankful uh, i've had the opportunity to be in the game of baseball the game of baseball has given me everything i have and you know i met my wife playing baseball and uh it's given me everything that I
0: uh, ever wanted. I want to go back to 1981. You're a 28th round pick out of Eastern Connecticut State University, starting your pro career several years with the Phillies, including time at AAA a before you would get into coaching. Give me sort of the the scouting report on Al LaBuff the player back mm-hmm. in those days.
1: Well, if it depends who you talk to. I remember, I'll tell you a quick story about the the year before that same year I was I went to the Cape for the Second time I went at my freshman year, and then my sophomore year I went. And when I went my sophomore year, the head coach uh, called me in with the pitching coach, and he told me, he said, "Al, he says you can't, you can't run, you can't throw, and you can't field. All you can do is hit, and they don't want people like you." And so basically, I was pretty much crushed yeah. when he told me that. So then I walked out, and then the pitching coach came out. Who was a solid old crotchety baseball guy? He said, "Al, he said, don't listen to that guy. All they want is guys that can hit, and they can teach you to do the other stuff." So, yeah, yeah that was kind of my uh, my initiation into uh, being drafted. And then I I went to the Cape for two. I was there for like two weeks, and uh, the Phillies
0: drafted me. And then I uh,
1: went home, and then off to Helena, Montana.
0: And a few years in, we were just talking about this earlier as the, the documentary came out this week, the 30 for 30 from ESPN about the 1986 Mets. You're facing a lot of those well-known 86 Mets names in your early days as a minor leaguer with the Phillies, particularly uh, at in 1983 against Doc Gooden, who would have had a no-hitter except for, as you called it in the article the other day on MLB.com, a 56 hopper. It, it really was.
1: <laughs> I mean... Uh... That was as he's probably as good of a pitcher as I've ever faced in my career. I, and, I mean, anybody that's ever faced him has uh, would probably say the same thing because back then it was, I mean, he was a 20-year or 18-year-old kid. All of his stuff was electric. I mean, I, I even referenced in the article that uh, he's the only guy I ever stood in the batter's box. And normally when a guy throws a good fastball, you can hear it coming. Mm-hmm he was the only guy I ever heard when he threw his curveball. you could hear it spinning. Yeah. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty devastating.
0: What do you remember about your playing days, early mid eighties, where you're, you're trying to make it yourself. You're looking around, you're comparing yourself to this guy or that guy trying to forecast your career and trying to figure out how, how high it can go. What was that world like? You know it well for these guys now, as you coach them, what was it like for you as a hitter?
1: Well, uh, Basically, in a nutshell, like like everybody, uh, when you're playing, you're it's all about you, and and you're thinking about what you can do to make the best version of yourself, and that's basically all I tried to do, day in and day out. I'm not gonna lie to you, I did get caught up in the in the well, how come this guy went up, mm-hmm. and how come I'm not going? Up. I
0: don't know how I c- how a guy couldn't get caught up in that.
1: Right, but you know what? It, I, and I understand it. I mean, it's human nature, but the sooner you can understand that you, the the worst thing you can do is worry about something that you cannot control, the better off you're going to be. And that's, mm. you know, it took me to double A to f- try to figure that out. And once I did, I found uh, that my game elevated
0: and I was a little more at peace. Yeah. You've told me a couple of stories over the years about different coaches or instructors, some some you liked, some you didn't care for that tried to do this or that with your swing, and I know that impacts how you approach these hitters. Uh, what do you recall about those days as a player, trying to get better as a hitter, but also realizing now that that was sort of also setting a foundation for you to become a coach at some point, whether you knew it then or not, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I always... I always loved the game of baseball, and uh, you know, for me personally, my as going through, I, heard, I blew my knee out in 1985, and I played a couple more years after that. And then my pri- me personally, my priorities changed. I got married. I wanted to have a family, and I didn't want to play a couple more years and then say, "Hey, Dad, let's go play in the backyard," and I couldn't. Mm-hmm just because I played and it was a it was a pretty tough decision because I got uh, in 1988 I was a player coach in Redding and I got 250 at bats and that's a lot for a player coach and we went on a road trip and I'll never forget it we went to Glens Falls New York and I went to bed I got up the next morning it took me 45 minutes to walk from the bed to the bathroom and I remember calling my wife on the the old rotary phones back in the hotel (laughs) and telling her I can't I couldn't do it so and once uh, when I made that decision I was good with it I really was I mean I was you know my again as I said my priorities changed and it was time to move on and then uh, Paul Owens who was the general manager of the Phillies at the time called me and said hey Al uh, we think you'd be pretty good at coaching would you want to give it a shot and I said well let me talk it over with my wife Laura
0: and we talked it over she goes give it a shot well here I am 40 <laughs> years later still doing it with some years too as a manager right what were you like yeah. as a manager and what do you not miss or miss sometimes about being a manager
1: well the 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 one thing I when I was managing I found that uh, it was fun to run the game but when you beca- when you go from playing and having control of something to running a team and knowing you have no control of it it's very frustrating and you what ends up happening is you end up paying attention to the wrong things which is the umpires yeah it's always the umpires fault well it's not (laughs) okay it's it's but it's it's the frustration of not being able to go out there and perform yeah and once you get over that okay and understand that it's you're more valuable in the game
0: than you are getting thrown out by the umpire, Yeah, the better off it is. Do you feel a component still of that, though, to a degree as a hitting coach, where ultimately they're the one who's going to get the box. You can spend the hours with them pregame. They've got to do it. But in some sense, you can control it a little bit more than you can as as a manager when you're managing 25 guys. Well, you can
1: to a certain point. But uh, uh, ultimately, when as soon as that guy gets in the batter's box, it's about him and the ball and – and it, he's got total control over it. That's why I'm not a big advocate of guys uh, – uh, coaches saying, oh, yeah, I did this, I did that. I did. No, you didn't.
0: Yeah. All right, they do it. Yeah. We help them, yeah. but they do it. Tell me the story. You you told me earlier this year on a pregame show. You, you don't have to necessarily name names. That's not the point here. But you had a coach or a roving instructor, somebody who at one point just flat out told you, Buffy, you you, you, you can't hit that way. And I know that that war on you then, and you've never necessarily tried to quote unquote change one of these guys that you're working with now.
1: No, I never. You know that that little uh, uh, incident probably shaped who I am today as a teacher or a hitting coach. Is you know back then we didn't have all the facilities that we have now. I, there was just a little a uh, drop net and a tee, and I had a little routine in Double A that I was doing, and it, it was. I felt it was successful for me Mm -hmm. I was hitting about 350 at the time and then back then the roving instructors didn't come by as much as they do now Mm -hmm. and he watched me take five or six swings and he said Buffy he said you can't hit like that so ever since that day I never forgot the feeling I had for that guy for making that statement yeah so therefore uh, I'm thankful you know it, it it hurt me at the time but over the years, over time and doing what I'm doing, I'm very thankful mm-hmm. that it happened because I don't. I don't try, I don't tell anybody what to do because it's their career, mm-hmm. especially at this level or even the major league uh, level. Yeah. You, don't, you, you don't tell anybody what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's their career. Yeah. And I found that the best hitting coaches I've ever been around have the innate ability to make the player feel like he's the solution to the problem.
0: And if you can do that, that, to me, that's a good teacher you coached with the Phillies from 89 to 2000. So included in that period, even though you weren't a big league coach this year was the 93 Phillies team. And I just I remember that World Series against the Blue Jays. I remember just the, the age and the impressionable age I was at at the time of following big league ball those early 90s years and I remember that Phillies team with Dykstra and Dalton and Eisenreich and Schilling and all these different guys what what do you remember about some of those guys and how many of them had you been with at the minor league level as they were coming up to become that World Series team well that 93 team was a special team uh, not
1: only on the field but off the field as well and uh, Jim Fagosi, God rest his soul who uh, was the manager he took really really good care of us and me personally Mm -hmm. it was a time where it uh, there was a uh, thing going on economically in the Philly system, and if we were we were I was in Major League camp then. If we were going to go back to the minor league camp, we're, economically we weren't going to be compensated because we lived in Florida. And Jim called us. Uh, there was three of us that uh, lived in Florida, mm. and Jim called us in and he said, "Don't worry. He said you're going you're, you're staying here the whole time." Wow. And I remember that that. i was packing up the last day of spring training okay and he came in he goes hey buffy what are you doing i said jimmy uh, it's the last day of spring training i said i'm going back he goes no you're not he said you're going you're going to the uh exhibition game so from that day uh, from that time for him doing that for me yeah you can only imagine what he did for that ball club oh yeah you know and i think that's a big part of why they were very successful they had Believe me when I tell you, they had as much fun as anybody on a on a baseball field mm-hmm. or in a clubhouse. But I'm going to tell you what, when the bell rang and it was time to play, it was grinding. They mm-hmm. grinded every game, every bat, every pitch. And uh, that uh, a huge credit goes to Jimmy and uh, Johnny Padres, uh, who was the pitching coach at that time.
0: Well, and I feel like that's a good example of what you referenced where the organization – wins when a big league team has a winning season. I think about this year, the Brewers have large goals as they should at the big league level. And it takes you guys down here. It takes the scouts. It ta- I mean, it, there's so many little steps in the recipe to end up having a season like you can like that at the big league level. Do you, do you feel that way? 100%. And I mean, it's,
1: uh, you know, in spring training, everybody feels good about their club. Okay, but as, this, as the season goes on, most people can figure out what kind of ball club you really have Mm -hmm. and how good. And uh, for our ball club, uh, I was told uh, by some individuals that they really liked their ball club coming out of spring training. Mm -hmm. And,
0: you know, they weren't lying because that's a pretty good ball club. Yeah, a long run with the Phillies and then parts of chunks of time with a few other organizations before. Now you've been with the Brewers for a long time. Uh, what, what do you learn about yourself and overall what hitting coaches have to do as you've gone around to a few different clubs to kind of say, all right, we did it that way there, they do it this way here, and you, I'm sure you learn a lot about, about yourself and the game. Absolutely. I,
1: I, uh, I think now uh, over time with all the new uh, analytics that, that have been put into the game, I think now. I'm a better teacher than i was before all of this and i'm uh, and i'm grateful for it yeah and i can never i can't understand why some of the uh the older generation let so to speak doesn't gravitate to this because it's it's pretty important it's yeah. again it's made me a better teacher it's allowed me to communicate with with players in a in a different at a different level and Knowing what, the, what, knowing what the numbers show, the trial and error process is a lot shorter than it used to be, you know? And what I mean by that is, is that back in the day, you had to, you know, try this, try that, try this. Now you can kind of look at the numbers, dissect the numbers and dissect the, you know, how his body's moving and pretty much cut it almost, not
0: almost in three quarters. So it's not, it's, it's more beneficial for the hitter than it used to be. There's an impressive adaptability that that has gone on with like you mentioned, you, Rick Sweet over the last several years. It would be really easy, I feel like, to say that's great that you have those numbers, you have this information, you have these cameras. My eyes are my eyes. You have the ability to use them and it's another point of reference, I guess.
1: Absolutely, and that's and that's what I said before. With all this information, it's if you if you if you understand it, or dive into it and 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 really make it a priority. It's not the end all cure all. Okay? Yeah. My eyes are pretty are pretty valuable because I've seen a lot of stuff over my time. Okay? And I know what it looks like. And just it, the numbers give me a reference point to go to to just validate what I see. Yeah. And if I if I could do it, I'm pretty sure everybody else can do it <laughs> as well.
0: I have to think there's this component of like, man, what kind of hitter would I have been with this information when I played? it? I don't know how you couldn't look at it that way sometimes.
1: Well, yeah, yes and no. You know what I mean? It, but it, ultimately, it's all about knowing what you do when you do it properly, okay? And what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And that's what the numbers can tell you. You know what I mean? Back in the day, we had to figure it out ourselves. You know, hey, the guy's got a good curveball. And what do we do? what you do is you, the best way to hit a curveball is you don't miss the fastball. Yeah. That's the bottom line, yeah. you know what I mean? But now you can dive into it all kinds of ways and uh, it's definitely more beneficial if you use the numbers properly. The numbers aren't the end all cure all. Yeah. They're only a component that you, or
0: a tool that you can use to make somebody a little bit better. I would think there are some fun conversations where you can go to a hitter and say, look, right here, this is what the pitchers have on their side. This is what they're looking at to get you out. And the hitter's probably like, oh, man, I've never, I've never had a chance to see it in this way before, right. you, you know. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a plus. But, again, I, I believe
1: that's why I say it's not the end-all cure-all. Yeah. That information is really good, okay, when you start the game. Yes. So you have a plan when you start the game. But during that game, there's going to come a time where, for example, I'll use this, is that the out pitch is a slider. Well, he doesn't have a slider that day. Mm-hmm. So if you're not paying, if you're only solely basing your inform, your what you're going to do off those numbers and yep. not pay atten- attention to the game, then you're doing yourself a disservice because the game changes. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- that's why I say there's a balance in there the number uh, you know i use the bill uh belichick reference just you know pay attention if you pay attention to the game the game will tell you what's going to happen
0: and the game will tell you what your strengths and weaknesses are as well how did you come to land with the brewers and you've had some longevity now with milwaukee and they've had changes at the high levels over the years in baseball operations guys like you rick sweet have had some longevity. So, what's it been like for you now? Uh, what almost a decade with Milwaukee?
1: Uh no, it's been. A, I'll tell you what. I'm. I'm truly blessed to be here, because uh, I was. Uh, I got. You know, I got caught in a, a change of regime uh, with the Mets, and Gord caught gave me a call and offered me a position. You know, uh, as a Double A hitting coach, and uh, you know, I'm forever grateful. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, the other thing is too is that in 2012 i uh i got sick here in nashville as a triple a hitting coach i had a blood cancer that gave me a neuropathy and uh i owe doug melvin uh, uh everything doug uh, took tremendous care of me and my family during that time because i was in a position not to be able to do my job and doug created a job for me just so i could stay in the game of baseball and I say it now and I'll say it again. I'm forever grateful for uh, what he did for me and my family.
0: There are some wonderful profile articles that have been written about you over the years. I hope people hear this would go look them up. They'll they'll get kind of the greater picture. Uh, but 2012, you're the Sounds hitting coach. And if memory serves, it was some unusual kind of soreness in your legs after a game of golf that started you to kind of wonder what's going on.
1: Yeah, it was... Uh, I had, we had an off day, and then we went. Darnell Coase was a manager in AA in Huntsville, which is very close to here. So me and Mike Guerrero drove down and played golf with him, and after 16 holes, I had a couple of cramps in my calves. And I didn't think anything of it on account of it was a uh, – you know, I hadn't played golf since spring training and, yeah. and maybe dehydrated and so on and so forth. So we flew – we got back. We flew to, uh, to Tucson – And we were playing, and uh, I threw batting practice that day, and my big toes started to get numb. And I still really didn't think anything of it. Uh, My ankles were a little swollen, but that was kind of common after flying anyway. Well, we went to Las Vegas, and they had a platform that was a little steeper. And I threw 15 minutes off that platform, and I couldn't get off it. And it was, I couldn't feel my feet. And I was, uh, I'm not gonna lie to you, I was petrified. And originally, they thought it was my back. And uh, so I went, I went to Vanderbilt, which I don't wish anybody getting sick, but if you are going to get sick, this is the place to do it because Vanderbilt is tremendous. I mean, absolutely tremendous, saved my life. And uh, they took an MRI on my back and they found a cancer spot on my right hip. And I was hit on that right hip in 1985, uh, 1984, with a fastball by Dave Rucker, I'll never forget it. And uh, for 30 years, it was pr- trying to heal produce protein in my too much protein in my body Mm. fought the antibodies in my system and gave me a a blood cancer called multiple myeloma and that multiple myeloma in turn gave me a neuropathy called poem syndrome which are only 200 known cases at the time in 2012 uh, in the world so and basically what it is is it it unwraps your nerves so from the tips of my toes to my knees uh, like right under my knees and a little bit my left hand it's it it's kind of like when you sleep on your arm and it goes numb mm-hmm. That's how my legs felt all the time so i ended up in a wheelchair for uh nine months so i went from a wheelchair walker forearm crutches one crutch then a cane and once i could move around on a cane i went in for a stem cell transplant where they use my own stem cells and uh that that process was probably the most uh, unbelievable i've uh, i've ever seen because every day they know exactly what your white blood cell count is. So basically you go in there and they give you this medicine called Nuprogen and it takes the bone marrows which are located in your b- bloodstream. And I mean in your, in your bone, inside your bone in the marrow and then they put it in the bloodstream. I sat on a bed for nine hours and they sucked four million of them out of me. Wow. And then I went into the BMT clinic in, at Moffitt Cancer Institute in, St- in Tampa and they hit me with the highest dose of chemo you could possibly get to wipe everything out. And then the next day they put uh, two, two million back in me and they froze two million. So it's a, it, the, the reason why I say it's a fascinating process is because every day they know what your white blood cell count is supposed to be. Well, I was supposed to leave on a Saturday on that Wednesday, my white your normal white blood cell count is zero to 13 or uh, nine to 13 somewhere in there. My white blood cell count on that day was 0.01. I was almost dead. Wow. And they told me, Al, you're going home on Saturday. I looked at the doctor. I said, there's no way in heck. <laughs> and sure enough, as I'm standing here, this was before uh, the pandemic and masks were mandatory. Mm-hmm. I walked out of there without even a mask on. Wow. Yeah. So it, uh, like I said, I'm grateful for the people at uh, Vanderbilt. They saved my life and uh, Moffitt Cancer Institute in Tampa. Because the oncologist here, how it all transpired, the oncologist in Vanderbilt knew a oncologist at Moffitt who actually treated one of the 200 cases in the world. So I think I'm a pretty
0: lucky guy. That's amazing. There's so much to unpack from all that. I don't even know where to start out. But do, do you have to go for follow-ups to make sure all your labs and everything is still the, where it needs to be?
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, after the transplant, I had to go twice a year for a blood and urine, a uh, uh, 24-hour urine sample. But uh, now I go once a year. At the end of the, every season, I go. And uh, when I go back to Moffitt, you know, it's a blood test and a 24-hour urine sample. And uh, every time I go, I always make it a point to go up to see the girls, uh, the nurses up there in the BMT clinic that yeah. took care of me because they get excited. They don't get to see patients come back very often. So... I can make them, uh, I I can put a little smile on their face
0: when I go. Well, I mean, you were already an easy and fun guy to be around before all this. So it's not like you had this massive transformation, even though it it might feel that way. But your infectious friendliness and smile that you have now is just so fun to be around. I mean, I, I know you still don't love umpires all the time during a game there are those moments where even Al the can still get a little hot under the collar but uh at the end of the day uh describe just your day-to-day joy because it is pretty special
1: well it, like i said before this all i'm like everybody else where you know there are a lot of things in this world that bothered me you know whether it's yeah. political whatever yeah. you know you know economics you know yeah. you worry about everything but I remember there was a time where I was in a wheelchair and I was laying in my bed and I couldn't do anything. And I was scrolling the channels and there was a program because most of the time people worry about economics. I mean, it's just human nature. Yeah. That's what you do because we want to provide for everybody. Well, I was laying in bed and flipping the channels and there used to be a program, it used to be called uh, the Le- Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. And I sat, I watched that for like five minutes and I said to myself, "When you think about it, what good would that do me right now? Mm-hmm. I couldn't do anything. So right then and there, that was that was like, and I, I don't even care. Yeah, I, you know, I don't even care about. All I care about is that I can help people, I can take care of my family, and I can make somebody a better baseball player. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all I live for yeah. now. You know, yeah. and and." It's it's kind of sad when you think about it, logically, mm-hmm. that it takes something of that magnitude to make you feel that way. But I believe that God kept me on this earth to do just that. And that's what I try to do each and every day.
0: Well, if fans see you at a game or down in the dugout, they might notice that you're not going to win any running races these days <laughs> with how you get around. But... You played golf just the other day. I mean, you're the first one to say, "Hey, I, I, I don't care how I walk. I played golf. I'm good. I'm, I'm happy. My family's good. Like you, just have this life is good moment."
1: Absolutely. You know the the. You know I can uh, I can, I tell everybody this when they ask me. You know, how you doing? I said, well, I can throw some BP, I can hit some fungos, but most importantly, I can play some golf. And when you think about it logically,
0: <laughs> what more do you need? Yeah. Man, uh, we'll end on that note. As always, uh, you've helped put a smile on faces today. I appreciate your time and thanks for sharing that. And hopefully it's a, a learning case for somebody who might have a little something that they're wondering about. Yeah, I'm sure you're an advocate of, there's no harm in getting it checked out by a doctor, right? There is not. And uh,
1: for those, I know there's people that might be listening that are having issues and stuff like that, there's, there's hope. Mm-hmm. You have a lot to live for. There's hope, keep grinding because good things will happen if you have a positive attitude
0: he's the best buffy Alabuff, Al sounds hitting coach joining us here today on rounding third we'll talk with you again next time thank you for listening to rounding third the official podcast of the nashville sounds for more information about sounds baseball and this podcast visit nashvillesounds.com slash podcasts